What's up, friends? Let's try that again, just for me. What's up, friends? Glad to see you. I want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood and online. Uh, what a delight it is to gather with our church family and to sing and to study God's Word today. Um, we're on week two of a series called Spiritual Warfare, and uh, it reminds me of a story that I heard a while back. Uh, it was about a gentleman who was uh, walking down the road to work, and he was actually passing through a construction site when all of a sudden he heard out of the heavens the word, Stop! And he just stops abruptly and he kind of looks around and all of a sudden a big pile of bricks falls right where he would have taken his next step. A few weeks later, uh, he was driving down the road and as he was riding down the road, he heard this voice again and it seemed to come out of the heavens and it was stop. And all of a sudden at a four-way stop, he stopped his car and slammed on his brakes as fast as he could. And while he did so, he saw a semi-truck coming right through his path. And he was a little bit perplexed and a little bit confused. This had happened twice in just about a month period. But all of a sudden, he just said, hey, where are you? Who are you? What are you doing? And all of a sudden, this voice out of head said, I'm your guardian angel because I spent my whole life looking after you. He goes, I bet you got a lot of questions, don't you? He goes, yeah, I, I do. Like, where, where are you? What, what are you doing? And more than that, why didn't you intervene when I met my mother-in-law? Now, I don't know what you believe about guardian angels or demons or any of those things, but I would imagine that we might land in the camp of what C.S. Lewis referred to uh, many years ago. This is what he wrote, and I'll put it for you up on the screen where you can see it. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, which is talking about the spiritual realm. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Lewis is saying, he goes, there, there's a probability that within the room, there's people who would just kind of say, you know what, I, don't, I just think that's a little far-fetched. I don't know that that's really happening. Yeah, I hear people talk about it, but we can't see it. And if I can't see it, it's hard to believe. Because there's a lot of us that that's how we are. We're tangible people, and to see is to believe. Yet, Lewis also says there's a whole other subset of people, a category of people that you're mesmerized by it, that in a lot of ways you desire to tap into the spiritual realm in, in, in an unhealthy way. And regardless of where you are, today we're going to talk about spiritual beings. When we talk about spiritual beings, there are a variety of them, but what you need to know is, is that they're not of this world. Um, they're not in this world, meaning that they exist in the heavenlies. They were created, um, but what's interesting is they're not flesh and blood. They do have intellect, they have wills, they have emotions. And as a result, we oftentimes hear them as being in the spiritual realm, and you refer to them as angels or demons. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, and this is where you get an idea of what's happening in the heavenlies. We appreciate this text because Paul clearly outlines in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Matter of fact, let's put it for ourselves where we can see it. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul clearly alludes to a spiritual war that's happening in the heavenlies between spiritual forces, cosmic powers. Ultimately, these forces and these authorities are at war in the heavenly realms. And we see that oftentimes referred to as a spiritual battle within Scripture. 
And so today we're going to talk about um, a variety of categories, and it's going to be around demons, angels, and us. And so if I were to title the message this morning, it would simply be that, demons, angels, and us. And so let's talk through them. And as we begin to talk through it through Scripture, I'm going to give you a variety of texts that you can go back and refer to. Um, we have a thing called Stone Point News. And the Stone Point News comes out by email. And if you're interested in it all and you don't receive it, you can simply go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash news. It literally will take you 10 seconds to, to, to sign up for it. It's going to give you all the happenings that are around Stone Point in the next handful of months, in which there's going to be a lot of them. Uh, it also gives you the Stone Point uh, news and sermon notes for every message uh, in addition to that, on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you'll get devotionals from our members that are riding through the book of Acts right now. And so it's a blessing to you, but all these references will be in my notes. If you sit down and look them up, it'll take you hours upon hours to do so. And so I'm going to try to fit all of the hours of study that I had into about 30 to 35 minutes. And I'm going to just trust that you'll have to go check me out uh, as to whether or not I'm right. And if, if I'm not, I would love to hear your perspective as well. So here we go. Demons. What are they? What are they referred to? Let's start with what they're just referred to. Uh, you hear them referred to as fallen angels. Um, we'll unpack that a bit in a few moments. Uh, you might see them referenced uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, as evil spirits. Or You'll hear them uh, in the Gospels. Uh, a great representation of that is Mark chapter 1, verse 27, as an unclean spirit. Uh, in 1 Kings, the Old Testament, you see them referenced as lying spirits. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, you see that they are referenced as angels of Satan. And so when you look at these idea of demons, what you know is, is that they're fallen, that they're sinful, that they're wretched, that they're evil, unclean, that they're lying. And most of all, they're angels or ministers on behalf of Satan. Now, here's a handful of things to know about them. You've seen them referenced, but who are they and what are they doing? Well, these demonic forces are created beings. Now, we don't know exactly when in the creation that they were created, but we do know that in the creation order, they were created at some point in the narrative. Now, it could have been before uh, we were created, which we would suppose to believe in Scripture is a clear picture, a representation that is before you and I or a human uh, humans were created. But what's interesting is, is that we also know, we get a picture of, that there was a group of angelic beings, uh, these demons that were created, that fell at some point along with Satan. Last week, we talked about public enemy number one. If you weren't here for that message, Cody did a great job of just kind of unpacking public enemy number one. You can go and reference that message, but he talked about how Satan fell. And Satan, you get a picture of him falling in um, a handful of passages. You, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Uh, you also get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 12 and on into um, chapter 3, all the way uh, past that as well, you get a picture of not only Satan falling, but it, it seems to allude that when he did, that he took angelic beings with him. Scripture would seem to indicate that he took roughly a third of the demonic realm with him when he did so. Now, they weren't initially demonic. They were created in uh, in the purposes of God and for the purposes of God, but yet Satan rebelled against him. And when he did so, these fallen angels followed him 
in his rebellion against God. He desired to be like God, and they desired to follow him in that rebellion. And ultimately, they are at work in the world. What's interesting is, is in Jude, uh, verse 6, you actually see that there are some demonic uh, forces that are locked up right now in the abodes of the earth, which is kind of a crazy thing to even think about. While there are some at work in the world, there are some that are chained until the gloomy days of darkness. And so you know that they have been at work. You know that they stepped out of their realm of of really their domain, and you see that many are locked up. At the same time, there are many at work in the world. And you might ask this question, well, how are they at work in the world? Well, they're at work in a variety of ways. And I'm not providing uh, you this on the screen, so you can just make a note of them, uh, but you'll see them in the Stone Point News. But we know for sure that Satan and his demons are at work seeking to deceive the world, uh, seeking to deceive the world in a variety of ways. Um, I think they seek to deceive us in, in our priorities. They seek to deceive uh, us in um, who we are. And ultimately, if, if Satan's rebellion was around him becoming like God, and all of these angelic beings followed him in that, we would seem to believe that they could use that even as a part of their ploy. I mean, even in our culture, don't we see that around us? Have it your way, just do it. I mean, even the brands, even the slogans that we seem to wear in a lot of ways accentuate this idea of you and I becoming our own gods. And isn't it an amazing thing that even uh, as they're at work in the world, how they can use simple things to bring about a guise or in some ways just to kind of pull the wool over our eyes. And that is what they're doing cleverly, strategically, even encouraging false doctrine within Christian churches. Friends, I'll tell you that one of the greatest priorities that you and I ought to be looking for within the church are people who ultimately teach sound doctrine. And while there are certain things that we may not agree on, what we would call non-essentials around here, there are essentials that are not being preached within American churches. And if, if Satan and his cronies can use the, the word of God to distort truth to Adam and Eve, don't you think that they could use God's truth to distort churches in America and across the world? Absolutely they can. And so they are deceiving the world. They're encouraging false doctrine. First Timothy chapter four, verse one, Paul tells Timothy that. They are blinding the hearts of unbelievers. They desire for a world to be separated from God just as they are. They desire for people to live apart from a holy God forever. And at the same time, we also know that they are harassing believers that there is a time and a place in which they are seeking to um, ultimately bring about confusion within the local church and within our own lives. You see several examples of that in 1 Peter chapter 5. You see it in John chapter 10. Jesus says it himself, that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, right? But what's interesting about that is you get a perspective that Paul writes. Have you ever heard about Paul and um, he, he's talked uh, in, uh, about a thorn in his flesh? Y'all ever heard that story? Maybe you haven't read it closely. I want to just put a verse up here for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul's talking about his weakness and about God being strong on his behalf. But look what Paul says regarding this issue. He says, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of what? Satan. 
You ever read that? Like, no, like you've heard about the thorn in the flesh, but I don't know that we've ever thought about, oh, is a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep him from what? Becoming conceited. At the end of the day, this messenger is even seeking out to, to mess with Paul. And Paul says it's actually not a bad thing because it keeps him from becoming what? Self-centered or egotistical. He goes, it helps me to keep a priority or focus in the right place. And so we see that they're at the work in the world in a variety of ways. We also see that they're combating holy angels in Revelation chapter 12 and Daniel chapter 10. A fantastic text. If you're just interested in this a little bit is Daniel chapter 10, where you would see Daniel praying uh, to the heavens. And for 21 days, his prayers are not answered and they seem to be stuck somewhere. And of course they are. And he gets a report from the angelic realm that, hey, we've heard your prayer, but there's a fight in the heavenlies. So what are they doing? They're doing all of these things. But what's incredible about this is that like Satan, the demonic realm's power is still limited. What does that mean? Well, it it seems to be that in multiple cases in Scripture, particularly around Peter and around uh, Job, that, that Satan and his cronies actually had to get permission from God before they could do anything. Which is a really encouraging thing. To just help you know that while there are demonic forces that are happening uh, in the, the, the heavenlies, and ultimately they're trying to influence the world and possibly even our lives, it is incredible to note that their power is still limited. That they still fall under subjection to a holy God who has all authority. And friends, that's when we would go like, hey, Amen. Like, praise the Lord. That's when we would agree that God is still in control. And here's one other thing that you should note about the demonic realm. And I think it's very important because I think there is confusion in our day and age around this particular topic. And that is, demonic forces cannot indwell a believer in Christ. Demonic forces cannot indwell a believer in Christ. Now, there may be a handful of us in here that you would disagree about that, but here's what I would tell you. There is no biblical text, not one, in which you would see a demonic force being able to indwell or possess a follower of Christ. Any type of possession in such outline in your Bible is someone who did not believe in Christ. And when they did believe in Christ, when they chose to follow Christ, demons were expelled. And the reason that that's important is because you see texts that help us even outline that. I'm not just pulling that out of air saying, hey, there's no biblical text. Well, consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where John just says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is greater? God, his son, Jesus Christ, is greater than any enemy force, Satan and those who he influences. But also consider a great passage in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. And when he's talking about him being a good shepherd, there's a handful of interesting things that Jesus says that I, I take to heart. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he said, my sheep, they hear my voice. They follow me. He even talks about that he is the gate. And ultimately, he is the keeper of the door. He's the door. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying, hey, I am the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, hey, I not only know my sheep, but my sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. They know who the shepherd is. 
Hence this, if you know who the shepherd is, don't you also know who the enemy is? I mean, honestly, let's think about this. Just in the natural rim, you have sheep. What do they run from? A wolf. Like, do you, you think you have to be taught that? No, it's, you see one and you go, run! <laughs> Likewise, Peter just says, the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. And he's looking for someone to devour. Who is he looking ultimately to devour? He's looking to devour anybody that is weak, anybody that's on the fringes, anyone that's not connected to the flock. He is ultimately looking for them. But what's interesting is, is that he cannot possess those who are connected to the vine. And the reason that is good news is because in John chapter 10, not only does he say, I'm the good shepherd, but he also says, you are in my hand. And in John chapter 10, the latter part of that, verses 27 and following, he says, and the Father's hand is greater than mine and nothing can snatch you out. The premise and the idea of that is this, is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, though the enemy certainly desires to deceive you, he certainly desires to trick you and snare you and ultimately wants to to use the, the flesh in which you inhibit, this body of death that you're dragging around. And he can use and influence you because you ultimately use and influence yourself in ways that don't promote the goodness of God, right? At the end of the day, it is good to note that he cannot possess you which ultimately is just a helpful thing to know that once you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are secure in him. You know him, you hear his voice, he knows you, you follow him, and he protects the gate. Ultimately, stay connected to the vine and you can cause the enemy to flee. That's a lot about demons. Let's move on to some better news. Let's talk about angels. Angels, what are they? Who are they? Ultimately, um, angels are referred to a multitude of things. They're God's heavenly host. You see that numerous times in Scripture. Actually, too many to, for me to even begin to list. Psalms, throughout the Scriptures, the, uh, the Gospels. They're also, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, referred to as ministering spirits. Paul writes uh, to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, and he refers to them as elect angels. Um, you see a variety of places where they're mentioned throughout the Bible, but then you even see these elect angels, and then you see different aspects or realms of them. For instance, have you ever heard of seraphim or cherubim? Any heard, any, yeah? You've sang songs about them, and you're like, what, what is that exactly, right? So let me just tell you real quick, seraphim, um, you see them mentioned in your Bible twice. That's it. And you see in the same passage. Matter of fact, I'm going to put it for you up on the screen. We're going to read it, and I'm going to show you what their role is. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, this is Isaiah giving an image of what he's seeing. He says, And I saw the throne, and there was one high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's giving a picture of who God is. And he says, And above him stood the seraphim, number one. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. That's quite differently than the angel that's set up in your nativity set, isn't it? <laughs> and so you just see, Isaiah goes, yeah, they don't look anything like the beautiful blonde that has wings. One called to the other. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said... 
This is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. That's the second mention of them. Having his hand of a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What is their role? Ultimately, their role is obviously to worship God. They say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the one who is full of glory. But primarily, they not only focus on the worship of God, but they also seem to project the purification of sin in Isaiah's ministry. With the burning coal, they touched his lips. Your guilt is taken away. It seemed to be that they were being used for the purification of of this man. And perhaps that's what they're being used for throughout the world, although we have no other text to divine such a narrative. That's all we got right there on seraphim. But what about cherubim? Cherubim are mentioned multitude of times. Matter of fact, cherubim are mentioned 66 times in Scripture. Ezekiel uh, shares about the cherubim 22 different times by himself. And the very first occasion that you see cherubim is actually one of the first times that you see good and evil in the world. In Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of man. Adam and Eve tempted and snared told not to eat of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose to do that anyway. Um, Ultimately, because of their choice, they're going to uh, have a series of consequences that they're going to face, Uh, like childbearing pains, enmity between a man and a woman, thorns and thistles, work of the ground is going to be laborious. Another one, though, is that they're going to see death. Death in two different ways. One is the removal of the presence of God from their lives, and second is their physical bodies will come to an end. But what's interesting is, is when you see the spiritual component take place, that they're removed from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, look what is placed in between them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says this, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So in the very first heaven that you ever had, God and man together... Man sins, and when he does so, he puts a cherubim to guard the Garden of Eden. When you see cherubim mentioned time and time and time in Scripture, you see them referred to oftentimes in uh, places like Exodus or Leviticus. Perhaps even uh, mostly you'll see them as it references the holy place or the most holy place, the temple, and ultimately the holy of holies. There are two of them seated above the mercy seat of God as they were carved in imagery of gold. Why is that? It seems to be that cherubim are a mention of not only the power of God, but primarily the holiness of God. Seems to be that they are separating in many ways God and his holiness from people and their sinfulness. And so cherubim are at work in the world in a variety of ways. But they're not alone. It's not just seraphim and cherubim. You also see a couple other mentions of angels in the Bible. One of them is called the archangel. Y'all know his name? Michael, Michael the archangel. You see several different inferences to him. He is called the archangel because that simply means the angel of highest order or rank. And so he is the one of highest order and rank. And you see him mentioned a variety of times in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 10, in Jude verse 9, and in Revelation chapter 12. He's not alone though. There's another one that's oftentimes referred to as 
an angelic being who's a trusted messenger. His name is Gabriel. Now, Gabriel, he actually revealed himself to three different people, and you see three different instances in your Bible. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about who did he actually, who did he get to? Okay, so you just think about it in your head, like who was it, okay? So the first time you see him, you see him in Daniel chapter 10, the war in the heavenlies. Gabriel is there. Uh, I'm sorry, that was actually Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, before the war in the heavenlies. Uh, The war in the heavenlies, Michael the archangel was there. Then you see him appear to Zechariah. Zechariah was the husband of Elizabeth, and they were to have a son called John the Baptist. He was the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. You see Gabriel show up uh, to him, and then you also uh, have Gabriel show up to a young lady who is a virgin, pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph, who is going to have the Messiah in the town of Bethlehem, in the city of David, and to be born to her would be the Messiah, and they would call him Jesus. He would be the Prince of Peace. And Gabriel showed up to comfort her and to give her an important message. So you see all of these different inferences, and you see who they are and what they're named. But the question is, what are they doing? What, what do they do in the world? So you see the references to them. Well, here's the deal. Angels, too, are created beings. They were created. And, and we also know that they are spiritual beings. They are at, in the heavenlies. Um, what's interesting about them compared to the demonic realm is that they have never sinned against God. So the demonic, the demonic realm chose to sin, and in their intellect, in their will, and in their emotions, they chose to go against God's purposes Whereas the angelic realm that works on behalf of God as ministering angels and ultimately for his purposes have not sinned against him. And in this very moment and in this hour, I think we could show multiple texts throughout the scriptures that they are worshiping God. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1, Revelation chapter 5, Psalm chapter 148, Isaiah chapter 6. You see the multitude of places where the angelic realm is worshiping God in this very moment. And as they worship God, they also rejoice in his purposes. They rejoice in what God is doing throughout the world. And they continue to give praise to God for that. One of the great inferences of that is in Job chapter 38. Job is having a dialogue with God. Job is questioning God. And that's when God kind of comes down on him a little bit. But one of the things you see in that book is that the angels are rejoicing in the purposes of God. That they're even there when he sets the pillars in the earth that they praise him for that. And it's an incredible text to look at. But we also know that they are servants of God, serving him in a variety of ways. They're instruments of God's judgment on the earth. Revelation chapter 7, chapter 8, you'll see that. Um, they seem to be uh, the ones who bring answer to prayer. So even as our incense rises to God, it seems to be the angelic realm is involved in that in some degree, in some way. Acts chapter 12, Daniel 10. They aid people towards Christ and the winning of them towards salvation. The angels seem to be participants in that. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10. They seem to be encouragement in times of danger or peril. Acts chapter 27. They carry the righteous to heaven at the time of death. They seem to be ministering angels at the time that we take our last breath and ultimately are arriving in the presence of God. It seems that we are carried along by angels. You can have an inference to that in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. 
And they were completely obedient to God's commands as they wore in the heavenlies. And so angels now are at war in the heavenlies. We've talked about that, and you see that in Ephesians 6 and Daniel 10. They are also perplexed by grace. Angels are perplexed by grace. We'll talk about that in further detail in just a second, but it's something to note. And even now, the angels still repent, or (laughs) repent, rejoice when one sinner repents, which is really good news. So what are they doing? They're participating in God's purposes. They're celebrating God's purposes. And they praise God when one person receives the grace exhibited to God through his loving kindness to sinners. And all of heaven rejoices, Luke 15. What a great thing. And so that's demons and angels, but what about us? Well, here's the deal. Things to know about us. We too are created beings. The difference is, is that we are created in the image and in the likeness of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. And as we're created in the image of God, that means that we are both physical and spiritual. And so one of the reasons we have a hard time wrapping ourselves around the angelic realm is because it is merely spiritual. Even God is all spirit. And so oftentimes in our head, we want to make God physical, right? And it's a challenge because even as we think about God, oftentimes maybe we see the imagery of Jesus and we see him as a physical being. What the scripture tells us, he's spiritual. But yet, even as we do that, we need to realize that while we are both physical and spiritual, we are also fallen beings. That we are fallen creatures. Now listen, in in the realm of demons, angels, and us, there are two categories in which you're fallen and there is one who's not. The angels have never fallen, and demons and humans both have fallen. I bet you didn't ever put yourself in the category of a demon, did you? The challenge is is that we don't. But the challenge is, is that ultimately when it comes to sin, we too have fallen just like Satan and his followers. But here's the good news. We, unlike the demonic realm, have an opportunity to respond and receive grace. The angelic realm that fall has fallen did not receive grace. Satan and all of his cronies, all the adversaries in that spiritual realm that fell, have not ever had a chance to respond to the loving kindness of God. But yet we have, which is one of the reasons the angels are perplexed by grace. Matter of fact, don't believe me? Let's look at it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Follow along closely, and we'll kind of wrap a couple things up together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Meaning God. Though we don't see him, hey, we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He goes, you don't seem, but you believe in him, you love him. And in our hearts, in our souls, we rejoice for joy and with joy because of the salvation that we have inherited by God's loving kindness through his son, Jesus. And then he, he does a shift. And he goes, now concerning this love, concerning this, he uses the word salvation. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets of Old Testament, did they also understand grace completely? 
No, they didn't. And so they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So even though Isaiah, 700 years, wrote about the Christ and ultimately he wrote about 24 prophecies that would be fulfilled in a 24-hour period, he still didn't understand the richness of God's loving kindness and grace, not the fulfillment of it, though he longed and sought to understand it. He says this in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? You. Why did the prophets write? Why did the prophets preach? To turn back sinners, ultimately to bring about God's purposes in the world. And it says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look into. What do the, the angels long to look into? What, what do the angels struggle to understand? The angels long to look into this thing called grace. Salvation. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think it's confusing to them? I don't know that I can prove it. I think I could. But I believe the angels are perplexed by grace is because you and I don't live as if we've had grace. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, hey, do we continue to sin that grace would increase? And then what was his response? By no means. What was Paul's point? Paul says, look, as, as a repentant sinner, one in which we know we were destined to destruction, Upon receiving grace, you would think that it would change a handful of things in our life. Ultimately, when we receive grace, what are we called to do as followers of Jesus Christ? We are, turn, we are called to turn and do an about face. It's called repentance, right? Repentance is acknowledging that you deserved one thing, and yet by God's loving kindness, he gave you another. And as you receive and recognize grace in your life, you now turn and you do an about face and you follow hard after Christ. And you too are now a minister of reconciliation. You are an ambassador of a kingdom. You are a steward of God's very grace. And as a result of being those things, you understand grace changes your life and you stay connected to the very one who gives you grace. I don't think you can prove that you have a um, guardian angel. Maybe you could. Maybe you couldn't. I I don't know. I mean, it's not too far-fetched to believe that there would be. At the same time, there's no historical or biblical evidence that would suggest such. But let's just say hypothetically you did. Would he or she be confused by your life? That's what they long to look into. A third of the the demonic realm used to be angels, cherubim, seraphim. One of them was the most beautiful angel and most likely the most powerful one, yet he fell. And when he did, he took a third of those with him. They've never received grace. They've never received the opportunity for repentance. But yet you and I did, as created beings in the image of God, we receive grace. That's perplexing in the angelic realm. Why? Because they long to understand it. 
And they long to understand a God who would give it. Why in the world would you give them grace? They are like the demons. Isn't that a gift? And isn't that incredibly good news? It is for me. Which then results in us becoming his image bearers. And as his image bearers, we talked about that we're his ambassadors. We're his ministers. Uh, We are servants of the Most High God. So we are now slaves to Christ, is what the Scripture would say. And as a result of that, we want um, to be his people. And friends, we have that job, which then lends it to this last point that I want to make, is that if you are his image bearers, you don't become an angel. And I want to just make this last emphasis. If we are his image bearers now, why would he desire in the last days to make you an angel? And so my last point, I'll put it for you up on the screen, is that we do not become angels. Now, there's a popular movie at Christmas time, and you might know it. It's a wonderful... And old Clarence, isn't he a great character? And he's a proponent that when the Bell rings, an angel gets. And my question would be, well, which set? Because the angels that we see are not the ones depicted in Scripture, right? But more than that, there is no biblical evidence anywhere that you or I would become angels. Matter of fact, let me just make a case to you. That if God created you in the image of God, And ultimately, you and I display the image of God, though spiritual, also physical. Why would we desire to be merely spiritual? See, what I want you to know is in the last days, when your body comes to an end, your body will go back to dust as it was. And yes, your spiritual being will go to the heavens and you will be with God. But what God is doing in the last days is waiting for a time in which he established his heavenly kingdom. And when he does, he is not going to give you a set of wings, friends. He's going to give you a body, a new one, in which meets up with that soul that's been clothed in white garments. And ultimately, in the righteousness of saints, he's going to give you a body that will never decay, never spoil, never fade away. And you will be with God as it was with Adam and Eve in the beginning. And it will be a great marriage. It will be a relationship in which even in the eternal realm, the angels still long to see and understand. Why would you want to lessen that? And more than that, does it give you great comfort that someone that's died became an angel? Because that's not greater comfort than there's a God who created you in his image for his purposes. And he desires to reestablish those purposes even in the heavens forever. That is greater news, friends. And so I just want to caution you, even though it might give you some great feelings or warmth in your heart that somebody has become an angel in their death. Friends, there is nothing more comforting than there is a good shepherd who loves you and made you like him and you are his sheep. You know his voice. You hear his voice. You follow him. He has you protected. The enemy can't touch you. Ultimately, in the eternal realm, he has you in his hand and there's nothing that snatches you out. Why would you desire anything other than that? And more than that, why in the world would you desire to trade a spiritual glorified body for eternity for a set of wings? (laughs) I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. 
But it seems like the best deal is the one the scriptures talk about. And that's the one we ought to promote. And that's the one we ought to use to comfort people. As in the last days, Christ will secure you and ultimately he will hold you and ultimately you will be like him and with him and you will know all the perplexing things that you and I can't understand one day. Because as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but one day we'll see him face to face and we'll understand and we'll know and we'll discern things the angels will never know or completely understand or discern. What an incredible news. Friends, that's demons, that's angels, and that's us. And I pray that as you head out this weekend, that you don't play it off as if there's nothing happening in the spiritual realm. At the same time, hey, don't get so entrenched in it that it consumes every thought. Remind yourself of where our thoughts are to be. Where are our thoughts to be? On Christ, the one who is high and lifted up. And so may we keep our eyes focused there. Colossians 3, not on earthly things, but on eternal things. Let me pray for you, church. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness thereof. Thank you, Lord, for the study of demons, angels, and us. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be your image bearers. Lord, help us to be marked for your purposes. Help us to exhibit the kindness and the character and the loving kindness of our faithful, wonderful, holy, righteous God who in your purposes saw us in our sin and sought to give us grace though we didn't deserve it. Thank you for angels who partnered in that. Thank you for angels who rejoiced in our repentance. And thank you, Lord, for the picture they give us of worship. And I pray, Lord, that we would practice worship now so that we're prepared to do it for eternity in ways that please you. We love you, we thank you, and we celebrate you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.